an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I come to Steubenville from time to time. Uh, Professor James Pauley in catechetics is, as you may know, a student in the Liturgical Institute, and he's had me come out and, and speak, and I'm very happy to be here. I'm an architectural historian by training, and in typical secular academia, you study churches in art history all the time, but you never learn anything about what they mean. It was this style, then it was this style, then this happened, then a famous guy came along and invented something. And ultimately, nobody asked the question, who cares? Right? So Michelangelo did something no, new, so what? Right? Did it bring people closer to God? Did it bring them closer to salvation? Did it make present the realities of the heavenly Jerusalem? The, the fundamental question, sort of the ontological question of the nature of a church building was never asked and never addressed. And at the same time, I kept running into people who said, why do churches look like that? How come they don't look like this anymore? You know, if you're a doctor and you go to a wedding and you sit next to somebody you don't know, they find out you're a doctor and they start telling you about all their aches and pains. I would go to a wedding and I'd say, I'm, I'm an architectural historian specializing in the sacramental theology of church architecture. And after they wonder what I've said, they say, how come my church doesn't look like that anymore? How come they took the statues out? How come when I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. How come that looks like a pizza hut? How come that looks like whatever? <laughs> well, the building's got to look like something, right? And what the architect decides to do, how they decide to draw a line, what that line man manifests and makes present will determine what the viewer sees. Because in a good Aristotelian thinking, you know, the, the content is in the object, right? It's in the object itself, and the viewer brings something to it but it's an objective understanding, where most of modern architectural practice is a subjective understanding that the architect does something and the person comes and has an emotional response to it that's theirs. The architect doesn't want to put any kind of special didactic quality in their architecture. And that's a really fundamental problem if you design a Catholic church that way, because you're not telling the viewer what they should be experiencing. Imagine if the scripture just had, well, I'm not going to tell you what scripture means. I'm just going to read it. And whatever your irrational, emotional response to it is, I'll just leave you there. Right? That's what people do with architecture all the time. So I had to go to scripture. And Dr. Hahn was kind enough to write a foreword to the book that was just mentioned, which was a great thing for me because I was scared to write about scripture. What do I know about the temple? I'm just a, an architectural historian. But uh, he was nice enough to write the foreword, which means I might, might have said something right. <laughs> about the temple. And then Dr. Bergsma gave a great introduction to the meaning of the temple. But I want to start with a quiz. It's right at the beginning. Raise your hand if you think this is a prison. A parking garage? A church? Uh, the cynical ones among you, yes, I see. This is a church in Germany from the 1940s. Right after World War II, right, they're trying to build things as fast as they can. Their whole belief in their traditional system of culture is destroyed, and the modernist architects come along and says, this is the great new age of steel, glass, concrete, and industry. None of those ages of kings and priests and Jesuses and things like that, right? So here we go. This was their manifestation of what they understood architecture to be. Okay, how about this one? You know, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but it would be a really strange-looking prison, wouldn't it? Why would a prison deserve all of this stuff? But you see, you start asking that question, what is this thing? What is it ontologically? And ontology is you know, the theological word for the essence, the nature of a thing. And so there's a relationship between the idea of a thing and then what it should look like. And if you don't have that correspondence, you start going, I, they, the sign says that's church, but it looks like a Pizza Hut, and I've been to Pizza Hut, and it's a pretty good Pizza Hut, but it's not a very good church. Have I come to the right place? Right? And then... 
instead of being relieved from the effects of the fall, right, which are a cause of lack of understanding, you're reinforced in you, right? I don't understand. Why does it say that? And it's, I don't get it, right? We're waiting for the time when our intellects will be perfected and we understand effortlessly. But sometimes architecture doesn't help and sometimes it does. This is a church that was just dedicated last year, uh, 2009, by an architect named David Maleka out of Columbus. And I had the good fortune to work on this. And I'll end the talk by talking about what we, what we did there. And you see, people call this modern and they call this traditional, but this is a lot newer than that one. So it's a funny time <laughs> that we're in. Now this church is uh, there in Chicago. If you've been there, it's right in the loop. It's called the Chicago Temple, but it's actually a Methodist church. And they put the church in the bottom part, and then all these offices here, and then they got permission from the city of Chicago to break the height limit on buildings, because buildings were only allowed to be this high up until then. And they got permission from the city council to build this spire so that the cross would be the tallest thing on the skyline of Chicago. Because they saw the skyscrapers were getting taller, making the churches look shorter, and all of a sudden, what they call temples of mammon, or the skyscrapers of the ad, ad agencies, were looking more important, money more important than God. And so they got permission to make the building that tall. Of course, the other buildings have grown up all around it now. But it lets you know architecture is a legible thing. It can be read once you learn to understand how architectural syntax and grammar works. All right, so raise your hand if you agree with this one. Jesus' victory on the cross overcame sin and death. Yes. Okay, we've got 90% agreement on that. <laughs> So, nobody sins and nobody dies anymore. Okay, that's a little funny, isn't it? Because we know that. But this is the answer to this. We are in this in-between time when the victory is won and we still feel the effects of sin. So we're in this in-between time after the fall, but before we get to the heavenly Jerusalem. So we need to be manifesting these things in sacramental way. This is how the whole sacramental system works. And this is where church architecture belongs. Basically, we want to take morning weeping in the Valley of Tears, Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, and we want to see the place where there is no mourning and no weeping and no death and no sorrow, right out of the book of Revelation. Everything's in right order in relationship. Everything uh, was chaotic is turned to cosmos or order. This is a big mural in the cathedral in Salt Lake City. And it was designed and painted by a guy named Felix Leaftuchter, who also did the great mural at the Wheeling West Virginia Cathedral, which is just down the road. If you need something to do on a Saturday, go there. You will see the Book of Revelation displayed in great paint on the walls there. But look what we have here. The starry skies, right? That, the, uh, the big cubic bride reached all the way to the upper, upper stratosphere, right? And there it is. But these are not little pin, pinholes of light, right? These are stars that look like flowers. They're eschatologically perfected, redeemed, fulfilled stars. And you see the, the Holy Spirit and the Father holding up the cross and the Son and the angels catching the blood. And then here you see Eve and Moses and the um, great uh, witness of the saints. So what the Catechism calls the Christus Todus, or the whole Christ, which includes the great mother of God, the angels, the saints, the persons of the Trinity. Unless you're a mystic, typically you don't get to see these things, right? Being a mystic would be kind of the extraordinary form of seeing heaven. This is the ordinary form, right? How do we see angels and saints? you make them out of wood, and there's one there, and there's one there. And so we have to take the stuff of the earth and turn it into something, but that stuff of the earth reveals that which is beyond us. And one of the great ways to think about this, Cardinal Ratzinger brought up in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy, but he stole it from Gregory the Great, was that, and I stole my title from him, the Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, that the, you know, time can be understood in these three periods, the time of shadow, and you can see my hand here, it's a shadow, right? You kind of know what it's about, but not fully. The reality is the heavenly future when everything is perfect and complete, 
and we're in between there, and that is called the time of image. It doesn't necessarily mean an image like a painting, but it means that matter is bringing this heavenly reality uh, back to our time. So when you see what Benedict says, the Old Testament, all these shadowy typologies of Christ, priests, prophets, kings, victims, temples, meals, covenants, and then there's the reality at the end of time when heaven and earth are completely restored with divine life, and the eternal takes entire possession of all historical reality that's in the future, but we participate in it. So think about that. The next time you hear about full conscious and active participation, it doesn't just mean running around the pews. It means participating in this heavenly vision through the gestures and texts and rituals of the Mass. And then the image is this in-between time when it's not complete yet. All of this happens in salvation uh, history in a sacramental system. I know many of you are probably familiar with this salvation history thing, but for those of you who are not, we're going to run through the history of the world in two minutes or less. So <laughs> God has no beginning, right? The life of the Trinity is happy, and it overflows, and what do we get? Creation, right. And Adam and Eve are happy in the garden, united with God. Everything is in right order. That word cosmos, or order, is where we get the word cosmetics from, by the way. So if anybody put makeup on your face today, you undid the cosmos of sleeping overnight and put order back on your face. <laughs> See, everything has a liturgical end, right? So what happens to mess this up, of course? The fall, rupture of right relationship, of course, we're not... You know, it's not shattered, but it's disordered. It's sort of out of order. And chaos enters the world, and nature falls as well, which is interesting because we're so eco-sensitive these days, but the lion still eats the lamb, right? It's not eating straw yet. That's, that's this biblical notion. Nature has fallen. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And then you see the salvation plan begins. And if you look at the Old Testament this way, God reveals himself, uh, that says tires, so it should say tries to restore uh, cosmos to Adam, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses. Think of the Ten Commandments, right? How has the world destroyed those by thinking it's finger-wagging, church lady, you must, or, you know, get hit by lightning bolts, right? How about this? Don't kill each other, okay? That's the first step toward becoming ready to be in the heavenly banquet. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Leave your neighbor's wife alone. I mean, think about it. It's just fundamental kindergarten, stop being a fallen creature, right? And so right after the Ten Commandments, ta the tabernacle of Moses. So what to, how to live, how to worship. Right? Take these clasps of gold and silver and, and copper and skins of goats and hair and all kinds of things and this Ark of the Covenant and do this and say this. Well, how to, how to live, how to worship. And eventually that becomes kind of formalized in the Temple of Solomon, which we heard about earlier. And we'll talk about that a lot. And then, you know, the whole New Testament uh, time of the Christ founding the church and Ascension and Pentecost, all the things we know about. But it does seem kind of like a parlor trick, right? Jesus says, I've re revealed everything to you, so goodbye, float away to heaven, right? It's up to you now, right? And that's where we are in the sacramental reign, somewhere between the second coming and the glorious heavenly future when God is all in all, the fall is overcome, and where Pentecost founded the church. And this red X that you are here, Mark, on the roadmap of salvation history, is where church architecture belongs. It's going to pull all the past forward, and it's going to pull all the future backward. And if you think about it this way, here is this dotted line that's the signs and symbols of the liturgy. Think about the liturgy, the priest acting as the head in persona Christi Capitis, the people in the pews acting as the members of the body, the Eucharist, the sacraments. Liturgical music can drum up the uh, emotional uh, 
sort of intensity of the people, but it can also reveal what the sound of the angels and saints in heaven are sounding like. So you see the heavenly realities coming back this way. Scripture, of course, reveals very knowledge of the mind of God. Uh, even the flowers and incense can bring you back to the garden, the sweet smell of, of the initial days in the garden, the uh, sweet smell of prayer rising. And how do you make prayer visible to the eye? Well, that's how you do it. The smoke rises up. And then liturgical art and architecture is what we'll be talking about today. So with that like seven-minute introduction, visit the cathedral in St. Louis, the great new cathedral of um, St. Louis the King. Look at these walls up to here made of courses of golden stone. Think about the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem being made of golden stone. And then above that, the great cosmos, the heavenly court of angels and saints, the four evangelists are here. And then the uh, central act joining heaven and earth and the crucifix right there. So you can see there's the altar leading right up, connecting heaven and earth. The whole thing covered in mosaic, which is like little tiny gem-like stones all coming together to form God's great building. Hopefully you'll hear the, uh, the New Testament overtones in there. But let's look at the time of shadow for a second. There are two fundamental strains that come from Judaism, and one of them is the synagogue. And people are pretty comfortable with that now. You know, it comes from this Greek word, uh, sin, or together, to, and a guy to bring or to lead. Sometimes they say to throw together. And it was a primarily a place for the spoken word and for gathering. And you hear about this in, um, in the scriptures, a consecrated place to be used exclusively for prayer, which is different than what some people will say the church is really a house based on the secular houses of the time of the apostles. And they existed as early as the third century BC. You hear about Christ preaching in the synagogue. And especially after the destruction of the temple, they become highly symbolic, not a neutral meeting house. They're oriented toward Jerusalem often. They contain the Torah ark for scriptures. You see this little niche here. Uh, there's a reader's platform called a bima. We get the word bema from, from that. This was rediscovered in the 20th century. And the seat of Moses, which is this sort of chair that was supposed to be the sign of the living tradition, which uh, Louis Boyer says becomes the, the chair of the bishop in the cathedral. And so there is a public gathering hall. You know, and that's the model that's been popular since the 60s and 70s, the gathering space, right? That's a term I hate, by the way. Please, I'll wake up screaming with nightmares in the middle of the night if you call a church an environment or a gathering space, uh, because it's not. It's a sacramental building, and this is where you gather, right? This is where you gather to be formed into the body of Christ, not out there. That's where you have social hall stuff, right? Gather in the church to become one mystical body. And it's not an environment, it's a sacramental building that tells you something. And so here's one of the, uh, what's left of the, the synagogue in Capernaum, right near St. Peter's house in the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty significant building, and it was built in the time of the Roman Empire, so you see a lot of classical tradition coming from the Roman uh, way, and with ornaments, here's the Star of David, various uh, plants and leaves. This is the Corinthian capital, and it has a menorah right up there to say, we're taking the Roman architectural tradition, but we're making it the Jewish version of that, even though there's all this tension between the Jews and the Romans. Uh, the Jews are pretty much Roman, um, Roman people, at least in the culture of Rome. Now the other thing is the temple. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you may have seen this big giant model at the Israeli Museum. It's about, I don't know, 10 times the size of this room. It's outdoors and you can go there. These are the handrails here, by the way. That's about three feet high right there. And the temple is a place of sacrifice. It's of limited size. God dwells in this little tiny room inside the temple. And there's an explicit and lengthy descriptions of it in scripture, first Kings and Chronicles. Every single thing is described where it came from, what it meant. Has a very small interior reserved to priests and the high priest, and it's a symbolic time of mythical time and space. 
Uh, the inner room was an image of the garden, and then the Holy of Holies, an image of heaven, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant, or the throne of God. So, I'll ask you, which is the best model for a proper Catholic church, temple or synagogue? Well, we, we, it's a place of sacrifice, so temple makes sense, you know? Both, right. We're good both and religion, right? And if you don't like the temple, you're probably going to build a big Walmart church, right? That you see a lot of evangelical communities do because the temple is, in a lot of those theologies, obsolete, right? That was all that popish-looking, popish-smelling, incense-filled, sacrificial language that not everybody's comfortable with. And so the answer is both. And a very uh, important guy said, the temple as well as the synagogue entered into Christianity, and that was... Cardinal Ratzinger in the spirit of the liturgy. And he said, you can't understand Catholic worship without the temple because the mass is a sacrifice, so you have the temple language of praise. So you have this word language, these two strains of Judaism that are battling out. Do I need bullocks and fat rams or do I need an upright heart? What is it? And here it is, both. So the gathered assembly from the synagogue in the context of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So in other words, you're renewing the sacrifice, but it's all happening through words uh, the offering of the, the Christ manifested in the priest as the head and the people as the members. And they're both fulfilled, both the temple and the synagogue, but they're both completely transcended. And you'll see there's some generational things going on here. So people of a certain age, really comfortable at the synagogue, the meeting house, the meeting hall. Uh, people are more traditional, say, oh, the temple, sacrifice, that kind of language. But they're both there, and they both have to be held together. So here's somebody's view of what the temple might have looked like. It had a porch and a big room and a little room in the back. And so here you see this porch with the hollow bronze columns and a big room covered in gold with angels and palm trees and flowers. And there's even some non-biblical sources that said people would bring gems as offerings and they'd put gems in the walls. And this is the high priest. You see that little blue speck there. That's the, the high priest inside there. And so if you read these accounts from Kings and Chronicles, you know, they have different views of what the temple meant, but here is somebody's um, reconstruction that the inner room was covered in cedar from Tyre, had a cypress wood floor, the walls overlaid with gold, decorated with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, roses, vegetables of different kinds, with no stone showing. So here we have this using the stuff of the earth to show what a garden might look like, a garden where humanity is at ease with angels, and it's all covered in gold. This is not the fallen Thoreau's, you know, Walden Pond, right? This is the new garden, the new Garden of Eden, the new earth restored. And there's lots of biblical uh, notions for this. In Genesis, the Lord dwells with Adam and Eve in a garden, not a temple, because the temple is uh, the garden is the temple. And there's lots of Old Testament language that the desert would become a garden again, and that the prophets wanted the end to be like the beginning. So as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Now this room in the back, this is the cubic bride right here. Right? Here's the cubic room of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And it's 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Usually I ask what shape it is, but we heard that already. Uh, it's the place of God's presence, and uh, to get in, one would pass through the veil. Maybe you know that phrase. The high priest would come through here, and there was a, a curtain here, a veil. And to go across the veil was to go into the place of God. And we still use that phrase, it passed through the veil, to, to mean um, death. Now the veil is very interesting because it was big, and it was made of four different kinds of fabric. And Josephus, who's this Jewish historian uh, in the very early years of the uh, church, uh, said the veil represented all of creation, the whole universe, which is why Christ is called the veil when he's uh, on, the, on the cross and when he dies, the veil is torn. And he said there's linen that it was made with and also blue wool, 
purple wool and scarlet wool, and that the blue represented the uh, air, the purple the sea, because it was the red blood of fish in the blue water of the sea, and then the scarlet being the fire. So you think about all these archetypal things about what the, what the creation is made of, stars, water, uh, earth, and air. And that it was woven with every manner of flower, and sometimes there are descriptions that it had the constellations on them. Notice there are 12, uh, not to get too much into astrology, but there are 12 of the zodiac signs, right? And so a lot of people say that's this thing for the non-Jews to understand that there'd be 12 tribes and 12 apostles. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And everyone is intended to represent the universe. And so very often you'll see the Virgin Mary using uh, wool or weaving at the Annunciation. And the, in this case, the red, which is the wool of the Holy Spirit, because they say, at least the Proto-Evangelion of James said that she was weaving Christ in her womb, and Christ was the veil, right? And she was one of these temple virgins, according to this story, whose job it was to weave the veil, because they'd sprinkle blood on it, and it would get dirty, and they'd have to make new ones pretty regularly. So they had these sort of teams of, of young women uh, weaving new veils, just as she was weaving the veil in her womb. And then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, this is the same Ark of Raiders of the Lost Ark, by the way. You probably know that. And the Israelites carried it around, and when they had God's presence, they would defeat the enemies of Israel. And so in the movie, they wanted it. You know, the Nazis wanted it, and they didn't get it. And then the guy's face melted off at the end, remember, because he couldn't use God like that. But here's the biblical description. The cherubim, these two angels, with their wings uh, touching, facing each other, looking toward uh, the cover, and then, you know, the glory of God or the Shekinah would sit right there, that God's presence would be represented atop this golden box. And so in Psalm 99, you know, he, he sits enthroned between the cherubim, and you probably know the high priest would bring on the Feast of Atonement the blood of bulls and goats in here and sprinkle it on there and then bring it out and pour it on the altar. So it was this bringing the blood transformed into the presence, uh, out of the presence of God uh, to the people. And he wore a lot of funny clothes, too. So uh, was, any, was everybody at Mass this morning? You saw Bishop Saratelli with his big pointy hat. Well, the high priest wore a big pointy hat, too. And nobody really knows if that's where it comes from, but there are people that argue that the, the bishop is the high priest, the lay people are the priests of the, you know, the baptismal priesthood, and then the, the earthly priest shares in the ministry of the bishop. And the high priest wore a nameplate right here that had the name of the Lord on it. So he's acting as the Lord, but he's going in to see this other person, in the Holy of Holies. So the Lord's going to see the Lord. God is going to see God. And the one in the Holy of Holies was called the Ancient of Days. So there's this proto-Trinitarian theology already that one aspect of God is going to see another aspect of God. And he wore this uh, cloak here that had the same four uh, fabrics as the veil. And then particularly these 12 gems on the breastplate. And there were 12 of them, and each one was carved with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you think about what the high priest is doing, he wants to bring all of creation back to God, to bring it into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Well, how are you going to get all the 12 tribes there? You know, 10 of the tribes are married off somewhere else. The other two are difficult. And you can't fit them all in a room that's 20 cubits wide anyway. So he wore them vicariously as gems. Now, these are stones, right? But these are stones that are radiant and transformed with light and color. So this isn't just the dust of Adam, right? This is the dust transformed into something radiant and colorful. And then that description we heard before of heavenly Jerusalem being made of those stones because heaven is made of the living stones transformed. Then you have the beginning of an adequate theology of talking about what a church should be, right? 
It's not a neutral meeting house, a skin for liturgical action that need not look like anything else, past or present. Thank you, Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy, 1978. No offense, uh, Bishop Saratelli. I know you weren't there at the time. But that was one of the most damaging statements that has ever spoken about Catholic Church architecture. And it came from a subcommittee of the Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy. The bishops didn't vote on it. So they, they got out there, though. It need not look like anything else, past or present. Never mind future, right? So that gives you some idea why a lot of churches didn't look like churches in, in uh, certain periods. So here are the hollow bronze columns. The high priest would go through there into the garden, go up the steps through the veil into heaven with the blood of goats on the Feast of the Atonement, bring it into the presence of God, then come out, pour it, and sprinkle it on the people, bringing the presence of God through blood. Hopefully you can see the, 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 the roots of the Eucharistic liturgy right here, coming through the nave, which is the new garden, stepping into the new Holy of Holies, going to, oh well, it's over there, but the golden box where the abiding presence of God resides with his people, right? So there was a lot of polemic around the time of Vatican II. The tabernacle is that thing for private devotion. It gets in the way. It's a distraction. Move it over there, right? As opposed to here's the abiding presence of Christ, who is not a distraction anymore. This is what Pope Benedict says, but is present with his people even as he's not limited to the little box anymore because he goes out to the world in us when we receive and I just started thinking about this a few years ago, and I, I grew up in New York, and I'd been to the St. Patrick's Cathedral many times, and I looked at it, and it was like the scales fell off my eyes because I started seeing gold and gems and trees and leaves and buds, and even this candlestick alone is covered with flowers. The uh, baldacchino, or the covering over the altar, appears to be made of vines and trees and flowers. Here, the, the, the columns of the, of the Gothic um, architecture come over and spread into ribs that look like the branches of trees. And I'd heard that before, but I never really thought about it. And then I walked up the street to Central Park and saw the great alley of elms there. And these are all pruned to, to be perfect, but they're still fallen trees, right? This is the perfected version of the new garden where the trees cover your head. And I started looking around everywhere. This is the underside of the pulpit. Leaves, leaves, flowers, buds, saints, more leaves even on these on the seats, more leaves here, even the communion rail is covered in leaves and saints. This strange little needless panel over the uh, heat covered in leaves. But notice, these are not the leaves that fall off the trees out here, right? These are leaves that fit into perfect diamonds, per perfect geometric overlay of number and harmony in a good Augustine thinking about the way that harmony has to be restored to the world. And this is just one of the little side altars in a little tiny chapel in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And you see saints, angels, garden, jewels, all together. And there's a woman, a Methodist minister in England named Margaret Barker, who writes a lot about the temple. And she used this phrase, that the temple was a jeweled garden where the angels live. And of course, if you moved over in this picture, you'd see Christ there as well. And so this little thing that an art historian would say, perfect example of the 1870s interest in the Gothic revival as started by Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin, blah, 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 right? So what? So what is, that's the first step. Then the next step is, what is that sacramentally? What's it mediating to us? These things that we can't perceive otherwise. Order, radiance, the new garden, and the heavenly beings. And so you see a church like this. How common is it to have two adoring angels on either side of an altar? Sometimes they're right next to the tabernacle. But you see the completion of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, what's left of the veil here, right? The veil's torn, but it's not gone. So there's your communion rail. It's a lot different than a lot of the polemics you hear today, that the rail is a fence, it's a barrier that keeps priests and people apart, right? That's, that, that's what you hear. Nobody says the rail is the altar of the people or the rail is the remains of the, of the veil. Good theological thinking can solve a lot of the problems that you see in communities. 
So what do we know about this from the Old Testament? Art and architecture are intended to allow us to perceive with our actual senses, otherwise invisible heavenly realities, showing the world restored, but in the time of shadow. Now in our own time on earth, you go to Rome, and the catechism says that church buildings are a sign that the church is living in this place, this group of people, the dwelling of God with men reconciled in Christ, which shows Christ is present in this place. Now you look through any traditional cities, you can see the churches are the biggest things. The houses look like houses, the churches look like churches, the palaces look like palaces. It's a very legible kind of city. I had a little fun with Photoshop here, because when I go out to parishes, people say, well, towers are stupid. There's always one guy who's like the engineer of the group, you know. They get hit by lightning, they fall down, they cost money, they don't do anything, and ice forms on them and you have to tuck point them every 20 years. It's all true. But <laughs> what's it worth to proclaim Christ to the people passing by who couldn't see it otherwise over those trees? I mean, these are the kinds of questions. You don't have to have a tower, but these are the kinds of questions to ask. Now, architecture brings uh, the elevation of nature, too, because there's nature and, and grace at work. And if I were to you know, fall out of a plane, people know Bear Grylls, you know that guy, Man Versus Wild, he, he's this former, yeah, you, you know it, okay, the British uh, Royal Navy, whatever, he jumps out of a plane in the middle of the jungle and he has to get out, right? he has to survive somehow. If that were me and I could build this for myself, I'd be pretty darn proud of myself, right? Because that's, <laughs> it doesn't look too hot, but it's more than I think I could do. But you see the basic logic of structure. Vertical things hold up horizontals or diagonals, and then they come together in certain ways that make sense. And if I got pretty good and had a little more time, I might be able to make myself a nice cabin in the woods with nice smooth beams and tied together with rope. And maybe if I'm really creative, I'd make little braids in the rope and elevate the structural members of the thing itself. And if I was really good, I could do this, <laughs> right? Big columns with grooves in them and column tops called capitals that mean something because they've developed over 1,800 years of meaning something, but they're still verticals holding up horizontals, holding up uh, members that go off in another direction. So there's the basic nature of structure, pretty good, really elevated, right? This is tummy full. This is, what a delectable meal that was, thank you, right? <laughs> you see, there's register in, in architecture as well as in language. And then it shows the record of how it's put together. This is a little garage near where I live where the good old boys hang out on Saturday and drink beer and fix cars. And it's a pretty simple building, but see the, the roof beams are sticking out and they're kind of clustered together here because somebody didn't really take the time to make them evenly spaced. But if you see, that's the origin of the structure of how a building goes. And then you look at a building like our chapel in my seminary where I teach, these little things, this one fell off because of our tough weather in Chicago, but these little things are called modillions, and they're the representation, poetically, of the ends of beams. And you don't have too many buildings like that on your campus, but go look at that water pumping station up the road here. You'll see this beautiful classical building perfectly worked out in all of its um, details. And then there's smaller members, little tiny uh, members like that, and they get put as something called dentils, D-E-N-T-I-L-S. And then there's the whole question of using the human body as something made in the image and likeness of God as a way to decide how proportions work. So if you, know, if you measure yourself from fingertip to fingertip, unless you have really long arms or something, but you, you generally they're about as wide as you are high. So you fit in a square, and then the circle as well. And so you can see how circles and squares can become images of how to make the proportions of a building ring true with the sort of resonant understanding of God's mind. Now you can pick any old 
uh, proportion you want and have it be arbitrary. It's kind of like singing flat, you know, someone sitting next to you, match this pitch, mm, and you go, eh, right? It's just not right, it's close, right? But all it is is a proportional question, and suddenly it rings true with a harmony to the ear that we're used to, but there's also harmony to the eye as well. And then there are developed human conventions. Maybe you know this, the Arch of Constantine, Constantine, the fourth century, the first Christian emperor, wins the Battle of Milvian Bridge against his rival, Maxentius, and he comes back, and they found out he won, but they didn't have time to build an arch for him, so he went off and did stuff for a few months while they built this, and then he came and walked through it again, and they had a big party. <laughs> Now, a city wall keeps people in, keeps people out. Going through the city wall means you belong inside or they're throwing you out, right? If the church is an image of the heavenly city with these 12 gates and you belong inside because you've been washed clean in the blood of the lamb, then walking in that door is a sacramental act because I belong in here. And so a door is a hole in the wall. A portal like this is an elevated hole in the wall that tells you how important entering the city is. And that looks important because they did something to it. And this little door, big door, little door pattern, or an ABA rhythm, if you like poetry, shows up in the front of churches. Here's the chapel where, uh, the seminary where I teach, and they put the little door, big door, little door. But you can see it in a very grand way, even at Amiens Cathedral in France, where not only do you have a little door and a big door and a little door, you have the whole array of heavenly beings and Christ the judge there uh, ready to welcome you into the heavenly city. So a door is a sacramental thing with a, with a small s. You know, they're the seven sacraments, but then there's all these other ways that God's reality is manifested. And one other thing, columns. Columns, columns all over the place. Here they are. Maybe you've studied these before. There's a Tuscan, which is the simple one. Doric, which is a little more complex. Ionic has these scrolls. Corinthian has the leaves. Composite has the scrolls and the leaves. And from left to right, these were understood as marker, markers of hierarchy. So unimportant buildings got Tuscan. Really important buildings got composite. So what kind of columns do you think are on St. Peter's in Rome? Composite. You're absolutely wrong. It's a trick question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Corinthian. Big. There's a guy right there. See this little white hair? That's a huge Corinthian. But these hollow bronze columns over the altar, over the tomb of Peter, those have composite because that's the highest status spot within the highest status building. And if you're a Thomist, you'll love this kind of fine tuning about what is more important than the next. They're both delightful, but it establishes the otherwise invisible reality that the tomb of Peter is a more important spot than something over there. And hollow bronze columns. Remember hollow bronze columns from the Temple of Solomon? Remember what's uh, Christ called a lot? Jesus, son of David. Who's the son of David? Solomon, who built the temple? Who built the new temple of us as the living stones? Right, Jesus Christ, right? And if you're the Pope and you're the vicar of Christ and you want to continue the mission of building up the church, you're going to quote the temple of Solomon pretty clearly because you're doing the same work of building up the church. And, you know, the church is born into this classical world. Uh, in Galatians, James and Cephas and John are called pillars of the church, right? And you guys are probably pillars of the church yourselves because you're here at Franciscan and you're here today and you do the bake sales and all the stuff that pillars of the church do. <laughs> but that's the enterprise of the people, right? But the building is made of people. Remember the living stones, the pillars of the church? And they're coming right out of the ancient tradition. This is in the Acropolis called the Porch of the Maidens. And the story of this is that the Athenians wanted to form an alliance and go attack somebody, which they like to do. The people of Carrier, this town in Greece, refused to join them and said, all right, well, we don't care about that other guy anymore. You're a traitor, so we're going to attack you instead. So they attacked Carrier. They killed the men, which is what they did. And they took the women and children into slavery. 
And what they did to show the Athenians that the women were slaves is they made them do the slave-like work of holding up a beam. And you see their hands are tied behind their back. And so this became a, a notion that columns are people, well, they already knew columns were people. In this case, it's quite uh, literal. And the writer Vitruvius is the only um, document from the ancient world that survives on architecture, said that the Ionic came from these Carrier women who had these kind of funny hairdos, like cinnamon bun, Princess Leia hairdos on the side of their head. <laughs> and they were told to wear a widow's dress. So everybody knew they had been married, even though their husbands were, were dead. It had folds in it. And he said, the Ionic column came from that. Mothers with a funny hairdo who wore the widow's dress. Now think of yourself like Augustine or somebody, the early days of the church. Here's a column that looks like a mother. It represents mothers. What kind of, who would you use that column for? A church dedicated to whom? The Blessed Mother, right. So look at Santa Maria, Santa Maria Maggiore Church in Rome. The first church in the history of the world dedicated to the Virgin Mary. The first church in the history of the world to use an entire row of Ionic columns. And Doric, the simple one, had the proportions of a man, they said. So they used it for temples to Mars. They also used it for churches to Peter, say. And then the composite, the Corinthian was much more slender, they said, at the proportions of a young girl. And that was associated with virgins, these delicate goddesses like Diana. And so they started using those for uh, churches of virgin martyrs, for instance. So you see, a column isn't just a pole. A column carries all kinds of cultural associations with it, which is why you can't just say, well, our age is defined by glass, steel, and industry. Today's columns are steel I-beams, so we'll just have 12 steel I-beams, and then we're done. Now, you could do that, but look what you lost in doing that. All these associated meanings of pillars of the church and people and saints. And then they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, right? This is my friend Larry. He never knew I'd be doing this for the next 10 years, showing him standing here next to this column. But some columns are barrel-chested, right? And some columns have pedestals that are as high as his little pede, right? There's a little pes, a little feet, right? So the columns have feet. Anybody know what the top of a column's called? Capital, right? So the Latin word caput. So columns have feet, and they have heads. And interestingly, the word for the base of a column comes from the Greek word basis, which means a foot. But it also means a dance, and specifically the dance that the procession up to the temple at the top of the mountains in Greece would dance. It was a liturgical dance. So a column is not just a person. It's a person with feet who are doing a liturgical dance, all coming out of the ancient world. And then the Christians can take it like that, even though it was associated with pagan ritual before. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be complicated, right? If you're a good, simple Franciscan and you want to have a simple version of, class, version of classical architecture, look at this. Very simple Doric implied beam right here, not very expensive. Or it could be as elaborate as this, right? <laughs> this is some kind of a crazy Rococo confection in Germany where instead of columns, there are mystical columns or angels holding up brackets. Then this big garden is covered with leaves and the angels and saints in there. And there's Christ standing on the world as his footstool in glory. So it can be simple. It can be extraordinary. But it's all the same natural theology. And you may notice there's a lot of stuff hanging around on traditional architecture, beads and angels and flowers and leaves and all kinds of things. Here, this is called an egg and dart. This is an egg shell cut open so you can see the yolk inside. And the egg was a symbol of new life in the ancient world, which is why rabbits give out chicken eggs at Easter still to this day. <laughs> so every time people get all complaining about pagan you know, Easter traditions, well, this is what it was. They you know, the, made the sparrows lay her, uh, what is it, nest by your altars, lay her young by her, your altars. There was this tradition in the Hebrew world and in the Greek world that if, if birds nested in your temple, that was a sign of blessing from the gods, and they would give the eggs away as souvenirs when um, pilgrims came. 
So that little molding, which you can still buy at Home Depot to this day, nobody knows what it means, but once you start to rediscover it, you can start to read it. What happened in all of these events? Were these funerals, graduations, weddings, right? We have this tradition left. If you hang white stuff on the edge of pews and a big white runner down, you know somebody's getting married, right? This is the tradition. When you hang stuff on stuff, something festive is happening. That's it. <laughs> But think about the modernist architectural proposal in the 20th century that said ornament is a relic of the past. Ornament is what rich people made poor people do to make their temples and palaces look good. And so with the Marxist strain, they said ornament is crime. In fact, there's a famous article called Ornament and Crime, where this guy named Adolf Loos measured how many, what percentage of prisoners had tattoos. And more prisoners had tattoos than everybody else, so he said tattoo is associated with crime, and so ornament should be eradicated from the world. It's crazy stuff, right? But people still read this in architecture school. But look what a festive wedding occasion has. Tossing of things, it's celebratory. These people went berserk, you know, with this fabric, carved a watermelon into a swan. I mean, it's kind of weird stuff. But that's what we do when there are festive occasions. And even think about the wedding ritual itself, right? Imagine the bride was here and I'm the groom. I'm here and the bride's coming to me. We heard about this this morning, right? The groom is saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And the bride's saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, right? Walks really slow down the aisle wearing a white dress, the great white garment of the wedding feast, wearing, carrying flowers, symbols of the garden, and covered in jewels probably. So jewels, white dress, long procession down the aisle, coming to meet the groom. The two who were separated become one with uh, the blessing of the church, and then the two you know, really become one, right, on the wedding night. And what flows from that? New life, right? You see all this? It's just that little tiny walk down the aisle encapsulates the whole of salvation history. Or you could do stuff like this, right? Which one of these do you think is from Martha Stewart's webpage? <laughs> Very Connecticut over here, yes, indeed. Swags of, you know, smelly uh, leaves. And this is more like where I grew up, you know, just hanging stuff all over the place. This is what we do for festive occasions. And this is a, a trim, like a fabric store I saw in New York, and people hang stuff on themselves, right? Anybody wearing a necklace today, earrings, right? You put stuff on yourself for festive occasions. Now look at these columns. This is a big ionic column with flowers going through the hair, these scrolly hairdos. Here is gold on top of this column. And look right where the neck would be on, above this, uh, below this capital, there's a, a necklace. This is wearing a necklace right here and up here as well in the hair. So we treat buildings the way we treat ourselves. And when you read the entrance antiphon for the Feast of the Dedication of the Basilica of St. John Lateran, from the New Missal, it says, I saw the holy city. So the church building is an image of this city with its gate, its portal, this new Jerusalem prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So the city is the bride, the bride is adorned, and so our churches are adorned as well. Here's a nice ionic column with a little extra necklace and some uh, fabric in the hair and a flower as well. Here's some other things that you see on buildings, hanging leaves and berries and flowers, and this is called a bead and reel. This is a big giant necklace. This is another egg and dart. And in the ancient world, they would do this as well. This is the Temple of Vespasian. These are the record of the, the sacrifice in the temple. Here's the skull of the bull that they slaughtered. Here's the ax they used to sort of cut it up with. Here's the bowl to pour the oblations. Uh, here's another knife and the helmet of the priest. And so the early Christians came along and said, okay, how can we do this? This is actually a Renaissance example, but this is the knives that were used to cut the bread. You know, like if you've been to an Orthodox church, they cut the, the pre-sanctified bread. Here's the cruets. Here's the, uh, the cross of the bishop and various things. There's pal uh, chal chalices and patens and so on. 
So they're taking the great tradition and, and Christianizing it. All right, so that's all the setup to the reality, right? The heavenly realities. Uh, I like to do this just because sometimes people, they used to call me a young fogey, now I'm a middle-aged fogey, I guess. But this is in Vatican II, right? You know these guys, Paul VI, John Twenty-Third, and here's the section on Sacrosanctum Concilium on art and architecture. Uh, Mother Church has been a friend of the fine arts because of all these great things that they do. What should they do? They should be set apart, so a little different than regular stuff, and worthy becoming and beautiful signs and symbols of heavenly realities. Notice it doesn't say it should be an empty living room with white wallboard and two palm trees, right? It says signs and symbols of heavenly realities. So what are the heavenly realities? What can we guess by reason? Ordered or disordered? Ordered, ordered right. Centered on God or centered on Rob Palladino? <laughs> centered on God, right? These are obvious questions. Empty or populated? Populated with who? Saints, angels, trinity, right? Perfected or flawed, you get the idea. It's perfected, radiant with the light of Christ. And so when you see a mural like this, start to think about all of this. And the, the, icon, the tradition of icons, there's gold leaf on the background because it doesn't look like any place on earth. It becomes outside of time. And you see the Trinity here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, different kinds of angels, saints. The palm trees, remember, they're carved on the walls of the, the temple. And then if you could see down low, the water is coming down. Uh, you see there's a little... Um, sort of flow of water coming out of the cross into these four little sort of spigots and they're going down to the world and there's fish and birds drinking from it in the bottom. It's very nice. So the question is, if there are supposed to be signs and symbols of heavenly realities, what does heaven look like? Well, we heard some of this earlier. There's one uh, seated on the throne, a rainbow that looks like an emerald. That's kind of strange, but think of a rainbow, right? Splitting the light through water to have all these gorgeous colors and the rainbow is a symbol of right relationship between God and humanity and gems. 24 elders dressed in white robes. White robes are the dress of heavenly beings. So whenever an angel shows up, and a man dressed in white, sometimes they say, think about that the next time you put on an alb for serving at mass or celebrating mass or whatever it is. You're putting on the dress of the heavenly beings. And then these four living creatures that we've come to know represent the four evangelists. And then what else? A great multitude. So everybody else, right? This is the whole world. This is the Jews, the Gentiles, the 12 tribes, from every people and nation standing before the throne and the Lamb. So this is what we know. And here's, we're back to the, uh, the cubic bride again. Uh, but this is the architect's starting point, right? If you ever have to build a church, tell your architect, this is who you need to listen to, the angel of the temple. It's pretty nice. The angel has a measuring rod. They measure heaven. They find out what it's about. It's square, length, width, and height are equal. It's a cube. So it looks like this, right? Is anybody old enough to remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the spaceships hanging out in there and they go to talk to it? This is not what heaven is, right? <laughs> Think about it a little more this way. Now, this is somebody's speculative theology, but in the 12th century, there was a, a theoretician of number, excuse me, theologian of number, theory of Chartres, and he said the sun really isn't um, God plus one, right? Because God gave himself to the Son. So it's more like a multiplication of God because anything finite would just get lost in the infiniteness of the Father. So he said the Son is really like the square of the Father, God multiplying himself. And you see how we fit into the square in that image we saw before. And then you get the Holy Spirit in there, you get God times God times God, or God cubed, right? And so it doesn't mean God is a cube, but it means that this nature of God, uh, he said the only number 
that has this, where you add it to itself three times, you get three. Multiply it by itself, you get one. So threeness and oneness exist in the cube like no other thing. And so it's symbolic and analogical language for what the shape of heaven might be like, which is the shape of God. And guess what? The bride is the shape of God at the end of time because we're restored. And look what else is there in heaven. Golden walls, foundations with 12 jewels. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, and so on. Remember the 12 jewels of the high priests being the 12 tribes, but now we have all the jewels, all the living stones of the heavenly world. And you can find every crackpot theory you want on earth, on the internet, which gem means which apostle, and so on. You know, which one would be um, um, uh, Judas, for instance, I don't know, right? But so they gave him one of these, I don't know which. Uh, but the idea is that heaven is now composed of gems, which means composed of us. And just think about it, nature, carbon, not that interesting. Heat and light, you get a diamond. Aluminum oxide plus chromium, you get a ruby. So do that sometime in good Lexio fashion, you know. Look every place where gems are mentioned in scripture. Just put like, you know, amethyst in a, a, one of those online Bibles, and you'll find out when the Israelites are in right relationship with God, they wear their gems around. When they worship the golden calf, take it off. Sackcloth and ashes, right? So gems are this sign of right relationship with God. And so here we have the souls, not just living stones, but you could say living gems, transform stones. And this is what somebody thought that these might um, look like. Okay, so is there a place for modern architecture in all of this? I'd say the answer is yes. Uh, this guy, Paul Abdokimov, said it's legitimate to search for new forms, but it always has to have the symbolic content is that's the same because it has a heavenly origin. That's where you start. What is a church? What is its heavenly origin? So when you look at some things, St. Mark's in Venice, for instance, here, covered in gold, little tiny pieces of mosaic, and then they form images of the one on the throne, the four-winged creatures, and then the heavenly beings. Uh, same thing here. Here are the jeweled walls with the white-robed elders inside. Or something like Saint-Chapelle in Paris, where the whole walls almost look like they're made of gems. They're gem-like and radiant, and light passes through them as the light of Christ radiates out from the faces of saints. And you go there and you see gardens and angels and water and gold and flowers. And this is the Wheeling West, uh, West Virginia Cathedral, by the way, just to inspire you to go down there. Here's the one seated on the throne surrounded by the rainbow with the white robed multitudes and the river of the water of life, the Holy Spirit washing into our place. And this is the sanctuary floor of the cathedral, and it looks like a bunch of jewels, right? The streets of heaven made of jewels. This was actually a budget floor in its own day. They were building in the Depression. They didn't have a lot of money. So they asked the marble guy to use all of his leftover pieces from his other jobs, and uh, they got something really um, amazing for it. And if you like your architecture kind of modern, here's a window that has no saccharine Victorian angels in it, but look how the walls of the church appear to be made of the gems of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's what the church looks like on the inside. So that this dark spot here is the altar. The choir actually stands behind the screen so that their voices come through the angels and saints who are here in the screen with the radiant gems of the wall behind them. So that the offering to God, you hear the choir singing the sound of the angels back to you. This is pretty clever stuff. This was built in 1960. And then you have to say, what about this? Right? I'm keeping my eye on the watch here. But this won some award from some magazine. And the people said, well, we're the people of God, but we're still broken. We're still under the effects of the fall, so we have to make an altar that looks like us, which is broken. <laughs> and the liturgy people give it first place prizes, right? This is actually stone. It looks like concrete, but it's actually stone carved to look unfinished. 
But you see, what happens when you don't know the notion of a heavenly perfection as sacramentalized in the altar, which is an image of Christ, right? So Christ is broken? No, no, no. Bad theology leads to bad architecture. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just uh, finish up with this. This is the church I started with at the beginning. St. Michael the Archangel Catholic Church, David Maleka is an architect down in Columbus who's made quite a specialty of churches, although he doesn't get very much um, press, unlike a lot of the architects at Notre Dame and some other people. This was his first proposal. It came in at twice the budget they asked for. So he went home for a week and he came down with this, which met the budget they asked for. And uh, so he gave them lots of ideas. And then this was still pretty darn good. 1,200-seat uh, church. This is a big church, uh, about $13 million. And um, this parish could afford it, fortunately. Uh, they decided to put the baptistry here, attached to the building, but then looking like a separate baptistry of the early Christian tradition. And that's how it turned out. Now, if you know how to read columns, you know these are all Doric columns. So there's the lowest status column, so it's on the outside, but it's also the column that represents the man or the warrior. This is St. Michael, the Archangel Church, so they use the Doric column as the primary column. And this was the plan. They wanted a three-sided uh, plan where everybody could be relatively close to the altar since it was a big church. But you can see, everybody can see everybody else from every spot of the uh, church. So it's recognizing the 20th century happened, but nonetheless trying to bring in the great tradition. And from the beginning, we had this idea to have a great mural there. And it was inspired by the one in Wheeling. And this is how it uh, turned out. It's 24 feet high and 14 feet wide. So it's pretty big. It cost $68,000, which is a lot of money but it's not really that much money in a $14 million building. It's about 20 parking spaces or a quarter of an elevator. So this is the, the focus of the whole heavenly bursting into your world. Pretty good price, $68,000. And the church used it in a lot of ways. They had the American saints here. You see Catherine Drexel and Miguel Pro, so the saints of the Americas. And they had all the kids in the school decide which saints should go in there, and they wrote papers about it, and they brought them in. And then you can see these heavenly buildings in the back, the generic sort of heavenly Jerusalem, and then an Art Deco skyscraper right there. Because I wanted them to realize that the new earth was not some platonic faraway place, but this earth where they lived. And so they found their most famous building in the Kansas City skyline was the utility company. It was called the Kansas City Power and Light Building, which is perfect for a heavenly Jerusalem, power and light of Christ. <laughs> Take a look at this, though. See this little floor? They decided the heavenly streets might look like that, but then look how the center aisle was made with the same pattern as the streets of heaven. So you can say, this eschatological future is the same reality that you're entering into right now. And then that's how it all turned out. It's the freestanding altar. This is, there's another little altar in the back with the tabernacle on it. That's not on this altar, it's in the, in the back. It looks like it's on it, though. And then they made up a column that never had existed before called the St. Michael's Composite. So this is the composite. Remember, the highest column capital type on the altar and nowhere else. And then they worked the sword of St. Michael into it. So it's the St. Michael's Composite. It's as old as the 4th century BC and as new as 2009. And then this is the baptistry, continuing the notion that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was coming down. That mural cost $12,000 in that dome. It's nothing. I know for a student it's a lot of money, but for a parish, <laughs> it's not much. And then the altar and the, the baptismal font have the same materials to show the relationship between altar and baptism. And then right around the building words, with the canticle from the heavenly Jerusalem, behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and so on. So what they're doing is told to them uh, in gold leaf on the walls. And then that's, that's what it looks like from the choir loft. So freestanding altar, seating on three sides, which is their prerequisite. And then guess what this is? The Arch of Constantine, right? And the Christ is coming through from heaven into the celebratory arch. 
And then there are separate chapels for devotional uh, things. So there's a little statue of the Virgin Mary in there. You can just see those, uh, excuse me, right there, the little door there. So uh, this is what to think about. If you're ever going to build a church, it's a theological thing. If you're going to write a homily, it would need to be true. It would need to be beautiful. It would need to be engaging. You want people to stand up and cheer when you say the truth, right? If you've ever been to a homily, it was so great, you just wanted to clap because you delighted in the truth. It works for the eye as well. So the church is an image of Christ. Look at this building site. Rocks, bricks, chaos, and a pile. And then little by little, you take those rocks and stones and bricks and assemble them into a glorified image of our heavenly future. Because we are church in the good way, right? We are church with the angels and the saints and the Trinity at the end of time when the fall is undone in us. And so when you see something like this, great church in um, France, Mont Saint-Michel, up on the heavenly mountain, you come to the door, all the heavenly beings attend to you. Um, the Herbs Beata Jerusalem is the hymn from First Vespers. Jerusalem, heavenly city, blessed vision of peace, built of living stones, us. You are raised on high to the heavens and attended like a bride by countless thousands of angels. And what's even great about this, it's not just an academic proposition. We like this, right? We like to look at these things. So we get to delight in the anticipation of our own salvation so that when we get to the pearly gates, Peter isn't going to say how many mortal sins. He's going to say, are you heavenly? Have you been doing heaven for the last 85 years? Well, yes, I have. So I've stopped sinning as much as I could. Okay, well, with the victory of Christ, you're in. That's what architecture does. It allows us to participate and become heavenly by enjoying heaven now. That's a pretty nice God we have, so thanks very much. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.